Hello, beautifuls. Welcome back to Her Sexual Space podcast. I am your host, Janice Leonard, licensed professional counselor and sex therapist here in Texas and Colorado. Before we get into today's episode, please note that while we aim for relevant and relatable topics to explore, these episodes are not a replacement or a substitute for your own relationship with a mental and or sexual health professional. This episode is sponsored by Simple Practice. Running a private practice is rewarding, but it can also be demanding. Simple Practice changes that. This practice management solution helps you focus on what's most important, your clients. By simplifying the business side of the private practice, like billing, scheduling, and even marketing. Stick around for a special offer at the end of this episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Sexual Space Podcast. Actually, this is the final episode for season two, and I'm so excited to just see how the podcast does while we're on break. It's always interesting to see what goes on with analytics. So I'm excited to see that. But also I have some fun projects that I am so excited about. So I am excited to, you know, just release this final episode and um, just sit back for a little bit. On this podcast today, we will be talking about a topic that has been highly requested. Also something that I really wanted to approach uh, in a very sensitive way. Um, And I'm glad that today we have a another mental health clinician to help me walk through that topic. So this episode is about working through sexual trauma, and I have invited an experienced mental health clinician to share her work with clients who have experienced and are working through sexual assault, sexual abuse, trauma. It is possible that some of the content mentioned in this episode could trigger you if you or someone you know have experienced this type of hurt. For immediate support, please call the National Support Hotline of the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, at 1-800-652-4673, or you can access the online chat or the hotline at hotline.rain.org. Dot online. So our guest today is Blanca Kleinfall. Uh, she's a local therapist in DFW, Texas. Her specialty areas are trauma-related issues involving toxic, abusive relationships, grief, grieving, sexual abuse, and intergenerational traumas. Blanca also works with clients dealing with anxiety and depression. She has been a therapist since 2014 and genuinely enjoys being a therapist who provides a safe and authentic place for all people, people of color, and the LGBTQ community. Welcome to the podcast, Blanca. Hi, good morning. Glad to be here. Good morning. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? Good, good. Getting the day started pretty early for me. Nice. <laughs> so this is not your usual uh, routine. <laughs> no, I was like, I like starting work at 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's mine too. But today was Friday. I do a 5 a.m. workout with my husband. So I'm usually up and ready to go really early on Fridays. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so early. Yeah, This is my workout yeah, is. time. That's the only way he'll go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the only way he'll go. So I have committed to doing this with him and I enjoy it. That's good. So share with me um, just how you identify in the world, how you show up, how do people see you? 
Yeah. So I consider myself a Mexican-American cisgendered woman. I guess my sexual orientation, bisexual, and I am married in a monogamous relationship with a man. And um, yeah, that's lovely. Lovely. Yeah. So share with our listeners uh, your psychotherapy journey. I like to all, I like to explore this because for a lot of us, this was not our first profession or our first choice. And um, it's always interesting to hear when that journey maybe started for you, when that light bulb, you know, went off for you. Share that with us. Yeah. So I was one of those very lucky kids who decided for some reason at 13 years old that I wanted to be a psychologist and my dream was to have my own practice someday. And um, I was lucky enough to find a local magnet school in Dallas that their teachings were actually centered around education and social services in particular. Mm. So I actually got to learn about what social services look like what being a therapist could be like either um, in a school setting or um, in the community, like as a social worker. And I went to college. I was like, I want to be a high school counselor. And then realized, oh, I have to be a teacher to do that. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll give this a try. Um, turns out I was did not enjoy working with children even though I worked really well with them, I was like, yeah. yeah, this isn't for me. I think I just want to do community and work with adults. And um, I went to grad school under like a community counseling route. Yeah, I got a lot of experience in grad school with my, my niche. Funny story. I didn't realize I had to find my own internship my last year of grad school. So I am going crazy looking for a internship the week before internship starts when everyone's already had their internship for like two months. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. I was like, oh my God, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. So I'm calling around the list of places and they're like, we don't have any space. I called a women's shelter in Denton. And they're like, I'm sorry, we're out of space. We're not accepting interns. We're already at capacity. And I'm like, I speak Spanish. <laughs> and the lady on the line is like, please hold. Five minutes later, they're like, can you come in tomorrow for an interview? Like, <laughs> I know. Um, turns out I'm the only Spanish speaker out of their 24 interns. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So they needed you. <laughs> they were like, yes, please come in tomorrow. You're good. Um, that was a great, wonderful blessing. But at the same time, um, because of that, I ended up doing a lot of work in that place. So mm. I ended up uh, doing a lot of individual counseling um, and helping with some groups. Um, mm -hmm. But also I ended up leading my own like groups at some point as well. Yeah. Um, like the relationship violence uh, group, which mm -hmm. for the Spanish group was the largest group that they had. And I literally taught the classes on choosing healthy relationships to um, women who had their kids taken away from the state due to domestic violence in the home. Yeah. So wow. I worked all over that place including mm -hmm. at the actual shelter on weekends. Yeah. And I'm familiar with the program because a lot of my uh, colleagues, um, when I did my internship at the jail, they had done their first practicum there. And uh, my supervisor, she was actually, she was actually one of the clinicians or directors there too. So choosing healthy relationships was one of the first um, classes and, and groups that I had, um, in jail. Yeah. With, <laughs> with, um, inmates. And that was, that was such an amazing class and curricula. And, um, I still hold on to a lot of the teachings from that. Yeah. And I have carried that into my work and with relationships because this comes up everywhere in all relationships. 
It, it absolutely comes up everywhere, um, especially in this field. Um, mm-hmm. After grad school, um, I worked at an abortion clinic for five years. Mm-hmm. And because of my experience with the women's shelter, I kind of became the go-to person for any kind of relationship violence and domestic mm-hmm. abuse and sexual abuse um, at the clinic. And there was a, a lot of that at the clinic. So um, you would be really surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give an example of what that might look like? Yeah. Um, so we, sometimes we had a lot of women come in um, with unwanted pregnancy due to a sexual assault. Um, grown women and also I, I ended up working with a lot of the minors as well. I think when they, when they would identify during the sonograms, like, oh, this was, you know, not a consensual um, pregnancy in terms of getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, they would be like, yeah, this sounds like a case for Blanca. So um, I would get a lot of the minors. And whether it was young women in like high school um, with being sexually assaulted or grown women being sexually assaulted by either their own partners, um, people they were going on a date with, or just strangers as well. That did happen quite a bit um, in terms of like getting an abortion sometimes. Mm-hmm. And do you still see a lot of that in your private practice now? Do people connect with you with some of those some of those issues around abortion? Yeah. Um in terms of abortion work, yes. Um, in private practice, I don't get as much, I had an abortion because I was sexually assaulted. More so, I had an abortion. It was just, I was very young. It was not the right time. Um, so I do, you know, in the general term of women's issues and abortion work, I do get a lot of women who have had a history of abortions. Um, and they just... Because of that, they feel comfortable being able to discuss that because um, that does affect them getting an abortion sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. It just, it depends on the situation. It depends on the person. There's just so many variables when it comes to abortion, really. For sure. Yeah, I see that too. So, you know, what are your best hopes um, for the clients you work with? And of course, we've talked a little bit about your niche in the bio. So I just wonder when people show up for maybe um, relationship violence, abuse, sexual abuse, sexual assault, um, those issues, what, what are your best hopes for your clients? Yeah, my best hope for clients is really to help them find some form of relief from the emotional, mental, physical effects of their traumas that they've experienced and some of the adverse life experiences that they've had, whether that's uh, toxic relationships, um, you know, sexual abuse, um, physical abuse from their childhood or in their, in the domestic violence sense as well. So just everybody just wants to come to get a sense of relief from that emotional weight of their experiences. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So when it comes to sexual assault and, um, you know, sexual abuse, trauma, uh, share with me like what symptoms often present, like what do you see show up? How do you see this showing up in their lives? Um, you know, for someone who has not processed or healed or worked through that, what, what can that look like Oh my for someone listening? Of course. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, God, in what ways does it not show up? Um, a history of sexual abuse, assault, um, it can present in many ways, depending on the person. Some people can continue to just constantly re-experience the trauma. Some are more of the avoidant type. Um, and not just like repressing memories, but avoiding using substances, drugs, drinking, um, avoidant of others. Some experience hyperarousal in the sense of like, not just being like sexually active, but of 
keeping themselves overly busy all the time, even if it's something mm. that's positive, like a workaholic in a way. Mm. Um, a lot of people can have difficulty with intimacy and not just in a sexual sense, but also in an emotional sense, connecting with a partner emotionally or just having a hard time finding a partner that is good for them in a way. Um, Sexual abuse can just, it, it can really affect people's mental health. It is the most intimate form of violation in a way. Yeah. Do you see, so, you know, I I like being able to identify and I, you know, I want for persons who are listening, any diagnosis, um, like in the DSM that you often see show up with someone with sexual abuse trauma? Yeah. Um, I would say that, you know, there's probably the three main diagnoses would be, um, depression, um, generalized anxiety and, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, it can kind of come up in all those kinds of ways, sometimes a mixture of them as well. Yeah. What is your primary approach? So when you see, when someone comes in, of course, with, um, or sexual abuse trauma, and, and I often see that persons don't often disclose that early on. Um, Mm -hmm. it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, I have had clients that, you know, this comes up like much later and I have clients who that comes up immediately in the intake. Um, Mm -hmm. so I wonder, so when, when it does come up, um, what is your approach to treatment? Yeah. And you're absolutely right about that. Depending on the person, Mm -hmm. it can come up right away. Um, I would say most people, even though they're coming to me for trauma or this, it, it's always like, oh, I just want to work on my anxiety or my depression. And then it kind of comes up to, oh, well, this is why you're potentially depressed or have anxiety. Um, but in terms of my approach, I always start with compassion, understanding, and no judgment. Um After that, we go through a trauma-informed psychoeducational approach, or Mm -hmm. we can either use EMDR as well. So it just really depends on the person, their readiness, and their comfortability with how they want to work on their mental health. Like, what are they really ready for? Yeah, that is so true. And I wonder, because sometimes this trauma affects, well, not sometimes it affects relationships. So Mm -hmm. do you also invite where, of course, when the person is ready or with consent, of course, do you also invite a partner to help them work through some of that? I personally usually don't. Um, Mm -hmm. We, with trauma, there's just so much to go through that um, we primarily just focus on the client individual issues. Um, I always, when it comes to kind of like relationships, um, mm-hmm. I do always refer out to a relationship, a couple therapist expert. Okay. Yeah. So I'm guessing after they have worked through the, the trauma, because I have seen clients who they've been, married for decades and this is something a part of their life that they have not disclosed and sometimes there is difficulty in how do I share that of course on their own time but Mm -hmm. how how do I share that with my partner and sometimes there are expectations that I see that show up in maybe responses right I you know I Mm -hmm. just shared something extremely personal with you and you know, maybe needing more, right? Needing more comfort, yeah. needing more compassion, all of that. Um, and maybe that wasn't the response they received. Um, so that's why I think maybe also having a partner show up sometimes could also help with, you know, some of this. But walk me through, um, you mentioned EMDR, walk me through, I'm going to explain to our listeners um, 
what that is, <laughs> what is that even? And, um, you know, how, how, you know, what is, what are the steps? Yeah. So, um, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. Um, I know it's a mouthful, so that's why we just call it EMDR. Um, it's pretty much a way to help reprocess our negative cognitions, which are basically strongly held thoughts, beliefs, feelings about ourselves, usually caused by trauma or some adverse life experience. Um, there's little traumas and there's big traumas, right? There's sexual abuse. And then there's, I had a really, really embarrassing moment in fifth grade and I've been emotionally scarred from, you know, social, like with social anxiety and like can't talk in public anymore. Um, so in a way, um, we try to neutralize or desensitize our negative reactions, which are both physical and mental reactions, um, to create positive cognitions about ourselves. So instead of feeling like I'm not good enough, saying I am good enough and um, working through a eight phase model um, that mm. incorporates a lot of coping skills, visualizations, different types of uh, coping skills to help process those memories. Mm-hmm. Can you share some of, you know, some of what those coping skills can look like? Yeah, um, we do some visualizations that are therapist guided. And then Mm -hmm. I um, kind of, some of the most common ones is like the happy place um, visualization or Mm -hmm. the light stream visualization where we imagine a healing light um, or essence of your choosing and whatever makes you feel comfortable. Um, to help relieve some of that physical tension that comes up with negative memories. Yeah. Also, just like there's a lot of breathing that happens, a lot of deep breathing. Sometimes even at the end of the uh, session, people just look really tense, um, whether that's from relief or exhaustion of the like mental processing and sometimes we're like all right let's just stretch for like two minutes and get some of that tension out um yeah lots of different coping skills that was gonna be my next question like how so you know there's also movement happening with the eyes but I also was wondering within our bodies right I'm thinking of the vagus system and you know how all of that is being um incorporated as we we move through some of that. Yeah. And although it's called eye movement, we don't just use eye move, rapid eye movement. Mm-hmm. Um, we can use, the point is to stimulate a bilateral dual attention stimulus, mm-hmm. which helps our kind of midbrain and our high brain make a connection and some of that higher thinking, emotional processing um, to be able to like learn from our traumas and be able to say, oh, this is why that happened. And it really wasn't my fault that that happened. And I can, although I can accept that it happened and that that moment really sucked, um, I know I'm not to blame. And that alone can cause so much relief and so much pain to go away emotionally, mentally, and honestly, even physically. Yeah. Yeah. Do you also see clients who are trying to um, maybe just work on their own sexuality through, you know, working on on this part first? It always depends on the client, like, and what exactly they're trying to work on in terms of their own sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, That may be something that we can use EMDR for. Um, cause you really can use it for most things, um, in terms of like anxiety, um, with something like that, we might try talk, just talking things out and like processing yeah. there first in terms of like, well, what are their goals in terms of like, 
discovering more about their sexuality or um, if you meant in terms of being safe or feeling Mm -hmm. safe during sexual encounters Mm -hmm. um, because of their traumas, then yes, because EMDR really helps target some of that physical release. It can help alleviate some of those um, warning signs that are happening um, during sex when they're like, this is my partner. I love them. I want to be with them and want to be intimate, Mm -hmm. but my body isn't allowing me because of the trauma that I've experienced. Um, I think as many therapists, we know that our body holds on to trauma. And, you know, Dr. Bessel van der Beek's book, The uh, Body Keeps a Score. Body Keeps a Score. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a huge book in in trauma therapy um, that our body holds on to that trauma. So even if you're telling your body it's I'm safe, your body is telling you I'm not safe. I'm not safe. I can't. Um, so EMDR can help relieve some of that tension physically and not just tell your body, Hey, I'm safe, but make your body really believe it mm-hmm. and actually feel it where it can help improve intimacy. Yeah. And I found that it takes, sometimes it, it takes a collaboration of a lot of things to really get to a place where you can feel safe within your body again. And, um, you know, I often give them options too, you know, in addition to, you know, EMDR, um, you know, biofeedback, somatic experiencing, uh, some form of coaching, couples, you know, all of those, you know, couples therapy, all of those things, I think energy healing, I think all of these things can go together um, for whatever, of course, whatever outcome that client has, you know, if they really feel stuck, you know, in that place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's more than one way to heal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think I asked this earlier, but I want to still explore um, for persons who, like you said, well, you know, there are so many variables and some of us are able to move on um, fairly quickly from something like that. And others, um, you know, we can feel stuck there for a while. So how do you see that a history of childhood sexual abuse or even adolescent sexual assaults show up in present life? Yeah. Well, it can definitely affect your relationships with other people. But really one of the biggest things that I see is is how it affects your relationship with yourself. Um that I would say is one of the hardest things to really help clients deal with because sexual abuse no matter really when um it affects how you view yourself. I I cannot say how many times I've I've really just validated people that it wasn't your fault. You you didn't deserve this. And just like really validating people that it, it wasn't their fault. And the reason is because there's such a huge sense of shame and guilt an embarrassment. Even when talking with a client who who was sexually assaulted at a very young age, like a very young age, and then feeling like, oh, I should have protected myself. I should have said something. And it's it's just heartbreaking to tell someone like, you're five years old. Like how would you have protected yourself? Um, and how that kind of just sticks with you for so much of your life until you really start to talk about it and give yourself some like love and compassion and understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying that like that. Cause I think for someone listening that that was pretty powerful, you know, and I think there's also that piece of, you know, it, it's hard sometimes to revisit the memories to revisit something like that when 
when, when we don't have tools, right? But I think with yeah. seeking therapy and um, specifically trauma therapy, um, that is what it's about, providing you with tools, helping you regulate and uh, almost re-engineering, you know, your brain um, in response to that trauma. Absolutely. And you would be surprised at how long people really hold on to this. And mm-hmm. and I think you can vouch for this as a therapist. Sometimes we're the first people in someone's life that they tell what happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or even what I see in my work with um, sexual abuse is almost even helping someone realize that they were sexually abused um, because there is definitely this disassociation that happens with sexual abuse and a client telling you about an ex- a sexual experience that happened. And in your head, you're just like, that does not sound consensual to me at all. And the client be like, oh yeah, I just, you know, they had sex with me. Oh God, I hate that phrase. It's they had sex with me. Um, okay, tell me, tell me more about what you mean by that. Yeah. And having to kind of be like, oh, okay. So, you know, that doesn't necessarily sound consensual to me. Um, and helping a client kind of make that connection. Mm-hmm. To be like, oh, you're right. I I did say no. I didn't want that to happen. And kind of the that accepting a bit of that reality of, of what happened is kind yeah. of the first step in treating trauma is kind of realizing and identifying what is trauma to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's definitely where we often have to start. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for someone listening and, you know, I have spoken to persons outside of therapy who have experienced sexual trauma and, you know, not understanding really what therapy can do for them. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think, of course, some of this is cultural too. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you just (laughs) share, like give an example of from consultation to... (laughs) end of treatment, uh, what, what does that look like for a person, a man, a woman, whoever um, is seeking treatment? What does that look like? Yeah. So I do prefer to always do a quick phone consultation prior to making an appointment. Even if I get reached out via email, I always ask like, yeah, it sounds like, you know, this might be a good fit, but I'd like to have a talk with you about what your needs are for therapy, um, just to kind of get a layout of the person and what, what all they're wanting to come for, um, or at least like some of the basics of why they want to come for. Um, and then we kind of get scheduled. Um, I always take that first session, um, and really those first few sessions to build rapport and trust with clients because surprisingly, most people don't want to jump right into their sexual abuse and assault stories for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, trauma work is not for the faint of heart. Um, it is something that I do see that people really think about this, not just for a few weeks, but sometimes I have people say, I've been wanting to do this for years and I know mm-hmm. I needed to do this. And I said, finally, this year, I'm, I'm going to go talk to a therapist about this. So taking that time to get to know each other, kind of asking about their life, um, their support system, their relationship history, um, what their main concerns are, how, you know, how is their anxiety presenting? How is depression in, in presenting? It just, you know, getting to know people really. And then after a few sessions, we kind of start um, approaching what they would feel comfortable with in treatment. Okay. Um, it's really all trauma-informed therapy, mm-hmm. but we can go through a more psychoeducational model 
and learning about what trauma is, what is abuse, learning about the power and control wheel, red Mm -hmm. flags, um, using a lot of workbooks if that's something that they want, um, and just talking and processing things out. If I feel that they are a good candidate for EMBR, um, we, I start to kind of inform them about what that looks like. And we kind of would start the EMDR uh, phases, starting with the first one. Okay. And also, I wonder, um, do you ensure stability? So I I work in psychiatry as well. Um, So I know one of the things our doctor is very particular about is making sure that they are stable enough. Mm-hmm. to, like you said, you know, you want to verify that they're a good candidate. So I wonder if that's what you mean, um, that they're stable enough to handle EMDR. Yeah. And that's exactly why, you know, I said that if I feel like they're a good candidate for that, I ask about their support system. What else do they have going on in life? And sometimes they're like, yeah, this is good. This is good. And then we start EMDR. We do phase one. We do a lot of coping skills. We learn about their, um, their current coping skills, teaching them new ones. And then we get to the processing phases. And then people's lives get hectic sometimes. And they're like, oh, I'm going through all these other changes, major changes in life. And, you know, if they kind of start getting triggered by some of the memories and stuff, um, we always put a pause, do more coping, make sure that they're feeling stable. Um, we want to make sure that people aren't in a state of like having suicidal ideation. Um, we just want to make sure that they're healthy and that they're safe foremost as therapists. Um, so we're constantly evaluating, is this a good fit? Is this a good fit right now? Um, even not just with the MDR, but any type of therapy. Um, you know, do we need to process more just general trauma and familial issues and how how culture affects our view of mental health? So sometimes mm-hmm. like having there's so much groundwork that therapists have to do to ensure that a client is prepared and safe. Um, for whatever method we use for treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for stating that. So I, I wonder if there's any pitfalls or any um, any particular things you want clients to look out for. Well, listeners, if they were seeking treatment, I wonder how would they know if you know this is working for them, if this is not working for them. Um, mm-hmm. Just any guidance on that. So as much as we have, you know, this is what works. I wonder, are there any other um, approaches that maybe might not work for some? Yeah. um, For example, with EMDR, there is always, well, not even just that, but general therapy, there is always an uncomfortability in therapy, I feel like, for clients because talking about your problems usually doesn't feel good. Even if there is a sign of relief, um, it is, it's hard work. Um, being okay, like, oh yeah, this really horrible thing happened. And that's why we have people that cry in sessions. But we want to see that their actions and their behaviors are improving. That even if they're like, yeah, I was really sad talking about it that they can process it healthily and start to see improvement in how they view themselves, how they are starting to view their relationships. For me, especially with relationship violence, when they start saying things like, yeah, I think my partner is gaslighting me or I'm realizing I was being gaslit or now I realize that my relationship with my parents is very unhealthy. Um, so they're, they're definitely learning something that is helping them improve their lives. Um, 
but then we have to kind of figure out, well, how can I set healthy boundaries with people in life? Right. So that's an even harder task to tackle. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, oh, that's the easy part. Uh, Mm -hmm. Try telling your Mexican parents no. And let's see how that goes. (laughs) I was like, I know I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah, Boundaries is the hardest. Like I have persons who just avoid conversations because, you know, it, you know, I, I guess, you know, for them, they don't see how it's going to change, but, um, yes. Yeah. Boundaries work. You know, that's one way to that's, that's your self care. That's you protecting yes. you. Exactly. But, um, but like you said, there's a lot to deconstruct even before we, we get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to add the rest of your question was like, mm-hmm. well, how do we know that this is not a good fit or it's yeah. not healthy mm-hmm. for them is, um, if for example, they, they start to drink more to cope mm-hmm. or they're increasing, um, they have an increase in irritation. Um, mm. so that's why building that rapport and trust is very yeah. important because you need that trust for people to say, Hey, I was like really thinking about last week's session and I was like feeling really upset, um, just kind of about the whole situation, not necessarily therapy itself, but the the realizations that they're having Mm -hmm. and then saying, yeah, I was like just starting fights that week for some reason. And, you know, I was like, well, tell me more about that. Like, what were you kind of thinking about? What's kind of been coming up for you? Is it other external life factors like increased stressors at work, uh, increased Mm -hmm. stressors with your partner, with your family, with your children, um, or just you're angry and you're upset because of what we've been talking about and validating people that, Yeah. yeah, this is the first time you're starting to allow yourself to be angry about what happened to you Mm -hmm. and just helping people cope through that by just hearing them out, by validating their feelings. Validating a person's feelings can go just so far. It it can just go a long way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier, you know, just some of the symptoms, right? Like irritability. I feel like that is a symptom that is often not maybe ignored, but it carries so much data like irritability, anger, and I wish like we would be more, not, I mean, of course we see it in therapy, but in our day-to-day lives, like when the people around us are just irritable and angry Mm -hmm. all the time, like that is something worth exploring. Like what happens to you, you know? Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I just feel like there's just so much packed in irritability and sometimes it's the symptom that gets the least attention because yeah you can be irritated about anything but Mm -hmm. long-term irritability can tell a lot yeah and um it's kind of like having a a chronic illness you know as like a headache right (laughs) yes like a headache um if if you are someone who and, and actually this comes up a lot in therapy too is that people have just chronic migraines, chronic Mm -hmm. um, physical pain or chronic illnesses. And Mm -hmm. sometimes for some reason, they're just so used to that, that that doesn't really come up until like much later. Um, And I'm just like, oh, no wonder you're irritable all the time. You're um, (laughs) literally have migraines one or two times a day, every single day. And you're just living your life and Especially, especially women. Oh my goodness. Women are the worst about this. Um, if we're being honest, they will mm-hmm. bear through it because they're like, well, I have to take care of the kids. I have to continue to run the household. If, whether they're single parents or even with partners, they still have to keep doing everything. Um, and it's so frustrating as as a woman myself, but as a therapist to say like, why aren't your partners helping you with this? Like you're both working. You both have children together, right? Like you live in the same household. Why are you not getting help with this? Um, why are you expected to do all of this work? 
Um, it's so frustrating, but yeah, living well, yeah. with that kind of, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, I was just saying, you know, we've covered that. <laughs> we've covered that in some episodes uh-huh. because yeah, that is, <laughs> there's a lot there to break down. There's a lot there to, um, society mm-hmm. and everything, all, you know, all of it, all yeah. the systems show up there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what does, you know, you know, sex look like after someone has healed from sexual trauma? Like, do you, do you believe or have you seen that someone could still have a, you know, have meaningful connections and an amazing sex life even after sexual trauma? Yeah, I think that hopefully it looks like great, fantastic, fun sex for them mm-hmm. that they can start enjoying all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you work on yourself um, and truly forgiving yourself and um, telling your body that, hey, this is, it's okay now, you're safe. And your body actually starts believing that yeah. you can start to, you know, one, enjoy yourself, but two, enjoy whoever you choose. And mm-hmm. it also protects you from future abuse as well mm-hmm. in terms of saying, yeah, I'm not going to have sex with you because you're making me uncomfortable. And no means no. And that's that. And that can make your body feel safe. That can make your body feel good. Whether this is in a casual dating sense or being able to tell your spouse, this isn't acceptable anymore. You're not going to do this to me anymore. And sometimes even ending a relationship, that's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. But you can definitely regain your confidence, your sexuality afterwards. In, term, in terms of just feeling safe, feeling loved, and feeling good about yourself. Yeah. And it's beautiful when you get to the other side of that. Yeah, it, 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 it absolutely is. Um, you know, I think one of the ways we can reclaim our sexuality after treatment is to Begin to understand your traumas, refocus feelings of shame, guilt, anger, sadness into feeling empowered, compassion, understanding, and above all else, love for yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. My last thought is how can partners support a person or a client who is working through their sexual trauma? Um, cause I have seen where partners can trigger some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder any tips on how partners can, you know, best support a client who is working through this. Yeah. Um, foremost patience, um, please just be patient with your partner. They are going through a lot. Um, I have had clients where they've kind of had to have a conversation with their partner, especially if they're really, they have really supportive, truly supportive partners Mm -hmm. and having a conversation with them and telling them like, Hey, I'm, I'm in therapy. You know, this is, this can be really hard and I'm wanting to be able to feel good about being intimate with you. And it it has nothing to do with you. It's just because of my traumas. Um, And I might sometimes need to either take a break um, Mm -hmm. or for you to, you know, if if you want to have sex, to please ask me more like openly, verbally um, and be okay when I say no. And just say, that's okay. Um, Maybe we can have, share other forms of intimacy. Exactly. There's no, yeah. <laughs> one way to be intimate, right? Than yeah. just penetrative sex um, or non penetrative sex, right? Um, mm-hmm. Holding hands, cuddling, um, being able to just 
be around each other. And, mm-hmm. and there's so many different ways to build intimacy. Yeah. But patience for sure. Um, and checking in, like how, I, I can't tell you how many times clients are like, yeah, my, my partner checks in with me, you know, after therapy to say, how, how did it go? How are you feeling? Is there anything you want to talk about? Um, that can go a long way and it really means a lot to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's, that's always really nice to hear that. Yeah. Happens. I love that. You said that so beautifully. Thank you so much. Any final um, tips or any final messages for our audience, our listeners? <laughs> yeah. If you've experienced, you know, I've had a history of sexual abuse or assault or also, you know, what we now is relationship violence. Um, or I guess like with the the popular thing right now is like toxic relationships, right? That's like the, mm-hmm. the big word online is toxic relationships is if you feel like things aren't right, you know, seek help, talk to a professional, um, maybe even talking to your friends, um, can be helpful because they'll, they'll tell you like, Hey, that's not okay for, mm-hmm. for that to happen. Um, so seeking help is really hard, but you're nine out of 10 times, you'll feel a lot better if you do talk to somebody about it, preferably a professional, of course, but yes, <laughs> anybody really. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time with us today. And I was wondering how can our listeners connect with, with you and your, your practice? Yeah, I have a website, www.kleinfallcounseling.com, K-L-E-I-N-F-A-L-L, counseling.com. And you can reach out to me there and see if I have availability. And I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Well, thank you so much uh, to our listeners. Thank you for catching this episode. This was our final episode for this season. Thank you so much. Bye, Blanca. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on socials and leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can check out our new website at www.sexualspace.com or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Sexual Space and Her Sexual Space Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye. This episode has been sponsored by Simple Practice, the leading practice management platform for private practitioners everywhere. More than 100,000 professionals use Simple Practice to power telehealth sessions, schedule appointments, file insurance claims, market their practice, and so much more, all on one HIPAA-compliant platform. Get your first $100 towards your first month of Simple Practice when you sign up for an account today. This exclusive offer is valid for new customers only. Go to www.simplepractice.com slash hersexualspace to learn more.